lovely to see so many people here this morning. Uh, my name's Dan and I'm the pastor here at Cornerstone. So if this is your first time, welcome. If you're uh, a uh, repeat offender, then it's great to have you back. Let's turn to our scripture, um, which is Genesis chapter 9, verse 8. Genesis chapter 9, verse 8. This is uh, one of our lectionary readings for this morning. And uh, this is what we read. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you, with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I establish my covenant with you never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood never again will there, will there be a flood to destroy the earth and god said this is the sign of the covenant i'm making between me and you and every living creature with you a covenant for all generations to come i have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth whenever i bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds i will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So, so God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I've established between me and all life on the earth. That's Genesis 9, 8 through 17. This is the start of our Lent series, uh, which will take us through to Easter. And this Lent, we're going to be um, spending the next six weeks studying and drawing near to a God who keeps and makes promises. Uh, in the words of the Bible, he, he, he keeps covenant with us, with humans. And uh, Psalm 25 verse 10 um, says this. Is this the verse that you read earlier, Wendy? I'm not sure. But... Um, I think this may be the one that you read early, earlier, which is great. It says, all the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful toward those who keep the demands of his, his covenant. So this concept of covenant is vital to knowing how we interact with and engage with the God of the Bible. In other words, if you don't understand this, it's hard to know um, how to even have a relationship with the Lord. Um, however, this isn't uh, a a word that we use so much nowadays. Um, so what I want to do is for us to engage our brains, our, our minds and our hearts as we watch a short video from the Bible project that uncovers this idea of what the word covenant means. If you've been around Christians, you've probably heard of the idea of having a personal relationship with God, which could mean different things in the Bible, like having God as a friend or your father or maybe your teacher. But there's one particular way that the Bible talks about this relationship that you find all over. But strangely, we don't talk about it that much. And that's the idea of a partnership with God. A partnership like working alongside someone to accomplish a goal together. Right. And this is actually what you see at the beginning of the Bible. God creates this good world full of all of this potential. And then God appoints these unique creatures, humans, as his partners in bringing more and more goodness out of all that potential. But the humans don't want to partner with God. They rebel and try to create a world on their own terms. And so this broken partnership is the Bible's explanation for why we're stuck in a world of corruption and injustice and the tragedy of death. 
it's not like there's just one or two humans who have bailed on this relationship. In the story of the Bible, everyone has abandoned the partnership with God. So what God does is select a smaller group of people out of the many, and he makes a new partnership with them called a covenant. And in a covenant, God makes promises, and then in exchange asks his partner to fulfill certain commitments. And the purpose of all of this is to somehow use this covenant relationship to renew his partnership with everybody else. Now, there are actually four times in the Old Testament that we're told God initiates a covenant relationship with Noah, Abraham, the nation of Israel, and King David. And it's through these that God is forming a covenant family into which all people will eventually be invited. So let's see how these work. The first one is with Noah. So in this story, God has just brought the flood to cleanse the world of humanity's corruption. And Noah and his family are the only ones left. And so God makes a covenant with Noah saying, listen, I know that humans will continue to be evil, but despite that, I'm not going to destroy it like this again. Instead, the earth will be this reliable place for us to work together. Great. So what does Noah have to do? Nothing. And that's what's so interesting about this first covenant is that God is promising to be faithful even though he knows humans won't be. The next time we see God make a covenant is with a man named Abraham. God chooses him, promises to bless him, give him a large family, lots of land where they can flourish. And in return, God asks Abraham to trust him and train up his family to do what is right and just. And the whole reason for this covenant is God says that somehow he's going to bring his blessing to all families of the world through this one family. So that's Abraham. The next time we see God make a covenant is when Abraham's family grows into the tribe of Israel. And this covenant is with the whole tribe. God asks them to obey a set of laws, which are these guidelines for living well as a community of God's partners. And if they do this, then God promises to bless them and that they will become a people who then represent him to the rest of humanity. That's the covenant with Israel. The last covenant is with King David. Yeah, the tribe of Israel has become this large nation ruled by David. And God asked David and his descendants to partner with him by leading Israel in obeying the laws and doing what is right and just. And God promises that one day, one of David's sons will come and extend God's kingdom of peace and blessing over all the nations. So those are the four covenants that God makes in order to restore his partnership with the whole world. But here's what happens. Israel breaks the covenant. They worship other gods, they allow horrible injustice, and so they lose their land and are forced off into exile. So it seems hopeless. But during this time, Israel's prophets talked about a day when God would restore these covenants in spite of Israel's failure, somehow. Yeah, they called it the new covenant. And this is actually what's so interesting about Jesus is that he's introduced into this story as the one who fulfills all of these covenant relationships. We're told that he's from the family of Abraham, and so he will bring the blessings of that family to the whole world. We're told that he's the faithful Israelite who is able to truly obey the law. And we're told that he's the king from the line of David. And so he goes about extending God's kingdom of justice and peace to all. And that's really remarkable for one guy. Yeah, and what it highlights is perhaps the most surprising claim of all made about this man, that Jesus is no mere human, but rather God become human. And God did this in order to be that faithful covenant partner that we are all made to be, but have failed to be. And so through Jesus, God has opened up a way for anyone to be in a renewed partnership with him. 
So Jesus calls people to follow him and become part of this new covenant family. And despite their failures, Jesus is committed to making them into partners who were becoming more and more faithful. The story of the Bible ends with a vision of a fully renewed world, full of goodness and peace. And there's this renewed humanity there, partnering together with God to expand the goodness of his creation. And so the end of the Bible story is really a new beginning. I hope that uh, short five-minute video helped us understand at least one of these major themes or threads that runs through the whole of the Bible. Um, Now, I know that many of us, myself included, sometimes feels that the Bible is, you know, a jumbled assortment of stories and, uh, you know, that there's very little rhyme or reason, uh, you know, really to what we read in the Bible. Uh, And in fact, this uh, author, Sandra Richter, in her book, the called called the epic of eden um she actually compares our understanding of the bible many of us to someone who has a messy closet um and she says this that the image is of a closet full crammed full of clothes slipping from their hangers accessories dangling from the shelves shoes piled Uh, in a mess on the floor. It's impossible to tell where one item stops and the next begins. You can't find anything. You can't use anything. Hands up if you've ever experienced that. If you've ever had that closet experience, parents, feel free to raise your child's hand as well. (laughs) And so Richter says this is how many of us approach the Bible. She says that There are dozens of stories, characters, dates, and place names. A great deal of information is in there, but as none of it really goes together, the the reader doesn't know how to use any of it. Rather, just like the dysfunctional closet, the dates, names, and narratives lie in an inaccessible heap, and she uses the image of a pile of clothes, and it's like, well, you know, if you're in a rush and you're rushing out the door, then what you're going to do is you're going to grab the, the least gross you know, item of clothing and shove that on and, you know, run out the door. And she says that's kind of what we do with our understanding of the Bible. So we have, you know, Noah and the ark and we have, you know, the crossing of the Red Sea and David and Goliath. And, you know, these are our stories that are there on the top of the pile of clothes and we just lift them up and that's our understanding of the Bible. Um, But what she does in this book, The Epic of Eden, which I would highly recommend, she actually goes about organizing the closet of our understanding of the Old Testament. And so, in short, let me show you how she organizes the Old Testament using the idea of covenant. And I think it's helpful for us to know this as a backdrop to this series, as well as understanding the meta-narrative in which, God, in which God's covenant with Noah takes place. So let's organize our Old Testament closet. First of all, God makes a covenant to Adam. And he says this in Genesis 2, 16, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will surely die. That is a covenant. Uh, next, he makes a covenant with Noah, and uh, he says, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. Uh, Next, he makes a covenant with Abraham, um, and the Lord said to your your descendants, I give this land from the 
Wadi of Egypt, up to the great river, the Euphrates. That's Genesis 15, 18. And then later in Genesis 17, verse 6, God says, I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. This is a covenant. Then you have the covenant that the Lord makes with Moses and the Israelites. And he says, now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, uh, you will be my tre- treasure possession. That's in Exodus 19. We'll also be looking at Exodus 20 next week. And then finally, you have yeah, King David, to whom the Lord said, now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. That's Second Samuel 7 verse 9. So these are the five main names that you need to know in order to understand how the Old Testament is organized. Uh, Richter also explains that there are three general areas in the in the Old Testament that set the stage. So we've got Mesopotamia, we've got Israel, and we've got Egypt. And here we can see on this map that virtually everything that happens in the Old Testament takes place in one of three, one of these three locations, Mesopotamia, Israel, or Egypt. So if we can keep in mind these five personalities, and let's list them off out loud all together, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. And if we can keep in mind these three geographical locations altogether, Mesopotamia, Israel, and Egypt, then we're a good way towards um, organizing our understanding of the narratives of the Old Testament. This is where God interacts with humanity as the plan of salvation uh, un. Uh, rolls out in spite of the sinfulness of humanity. It all takes place here. God always has a remnant. God always has a people, sometimes even just one individual. And in Genesis chapter 9, that individual is who? Noah. Okay? Now, over an extended period of time, think thousands of years, you know, as a country, we've existed for what? 155 years, 154 years, something like that. But over an extended time, think thousands of years, which is long enough for a civilization to grow and then end up being so evil and so wicked and so corrupt that God has to start again. Okay, that's how long it took from Adam to Noah. Sometimes that rot is so in there that surface cleaning is not an option. The, you know, the whole of the basement has to be torn out and replaced. And so, so we have the account of the flood and that it kind of reverted the earth to an Eden state, a blank state where, where or a, a blank slate where God started again with eight people. And so this new Adam or Noah, God said this, in verse 8 of chapter 9. He said, or it says, then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. So God is making a covenant partner of Noah as a representative of all humanity after him. And not only that, but in verse 10, God actually makes a covenant with the animals on the ark that represent all future living creatures. Verse 10, and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. In other words, God is making a global guarantee. And this is his promise to Noah 
who represents all humankind and the animals that, re that represent all nature. Verse 11, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. This is a recreation event. You know, just like the, the first, first chapter in the Bible, um, out of the water, God brings a new creation consisting of nature and creation with humankind as the overseers, as the, uh, as the custodians, as those responsible, and God makes a covenant with them. Now, there are three types of covenant that God makes in the Bible. And the first of these is a parity covenant, which is a covenant or an agreement between people who are equal. So marriage would be considered a parity covenant. And we see examples of this in uh, Genesis 21-27 with Abraham and with Abimelech, and then 1 Kings 5-11 with Solomon and Hiram. Now the sec second sort of covenant that we read in the Bible is known as the suzerain vassal covenant. And this is, it's a conditional covenant. And this is between a suzerain or a powerful king and a subject, you know, or a subject king. So they aren't equals. Uh, someone who is, who is great, who is mighty, who is powerful, and someone who is lesser. And what happens in this sort of an agreement is that the king promises to look after them, um, while the subject promises that uh, he will be, he will be faithful. He will serve him, and we see this in, uh, yeah, Joshua chapter nine verse six and Hosea chapter twelve verse one. And the third type of covenant is called the royal grant, and this was completely one-sided. Um, so the king or whoever gave a gift to his subject for faithful serve for service, and this gift would last forever. But it was absolutely unconditional in the sense that the subject did nothing in the covenant. It was all on the side of the king. It was all, it was all on the side of the Lord. It was, it was only on the side of the ruler. And we see examples of this in 1 Samuel 8 verse 4 and Esther 8 verse 1. Now, if you're wondering which one of these was the covenant that God made with Noah, well, actually, let me ask you, which do you think it was? Do you think it was the parity covenant between equals uh, or the conditional suzerain vassal covenant or the royal grant one, that, that one-sided unconditional covenant? Which one do you think was the Noah one? Number three, the royal grant. That's exactly right. Um, because what we see is the Lord saying, uh, I establish my covenant with you, one-sided, nev never again will all life will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. So Noah could take that promise up to the bank, he could cash it. In fact, we are still living in the promise that God made to Noah then. Verse 12, and God said, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I've set my rainbow in the clouds, it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth, the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the cloud, I will 
see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. Genesis 9 verse 12 through 16. Then the next verse, verse 17. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I've established between me and all life on earth. Now, one of the questions I ask is, why do we need a covenant keeping God? Why is it so vital, so important that we have a covenant keeping God? But, and not just a covenant keeping God, but a royal grant covenant keeping God who sets himself up as the one purely responsible for keeping both sides of the bargain. Why is that so important for us? I think the answer is this, because we're rubbish at keeping covenants. We're rubbish at keeping our words. In fact, the very next story after this incredible royal grant covenant that God has made with Noah is this completely messed up chapter of Noah getting drunk, of Ham, his son, coming in and seeing him naked, and then Ham going to Shem and to Japheth and saying, hey, you want to come see dad naked? And then, uh, okay, and then Shem and Ham... Uh, sorry, Ham, Shem and Japheth doing the, the right thing and they actually cover him up. And then Noah curses Ham and all his descendants after him. So we're not good at keeping covenants. Left to our own devices, life gets ugly very, very quickly. So if the establishment of God's kingdom here on earth was purely up to us, it would not be a pretty picture. We do stupid stuff. We sin. We break the commandments of the Lord. We welch on the deal. I love that that word welch has made its way into the English language and it comes from Welsh. I just love that. But we uh, welch on the deal. I guess that, uh, you know, the Welsh were the first untrustworthy people, maybe. I'm not sure. But over and over again, we, we break um, our agreement. And that's why we need a, a God who keeps the covenant, especially um, the royal grant type. This is why verse 17 is so important. This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all life on the earth. God has created a permanent reminder to all humanity and all nature that God will be faithful even when we are not. Now there's this amazing cross-reference of Genesis chapter 9 in the letter of uh, 1 Peter 3, verse 18 to 22, uh, which is another one of our lectionary readings this morning for the first week of Lent. This is how 1 Peter 3 reads, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? To bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism and now saves you also, not the removal, removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Okay, so there's a lot going on here. What we have is the sacrifice of Christ. We have the resurrection of Christ. Then there's this moment where Christ goes and proclaims or preaches to the imprisoned spirits who are the spirits of those 
who were disobedient in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. We also have a, a reference to the floods, the eight who were saved. There's a connection there to the symbol of baptism, um, to the cleansing of the conscience. And finally, we have the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ to the right hand of God. So in these five verses, Peter takes us on a journey throughout most of the Bible from, from the flood to the ascension of Jesus Christ. From the start up until the end, more or less, there's a lot going on here. Now, of course, we have a lot of questions like, what is going on here? Who are the imprisoned spirits? How did Jesus preach to them? Um, now, without necessarily glossing over these questions, I want to keep in mind that the main purpose of 1 Peter chapter 3 is to explain that the flood of Noah represents our problem with sin, in other words, it affects all of us and there is no escape from it. Sin requires that a just and a holy God not overlook what humans have done, hence the flood, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. However, even in the fallout of sin, God makes a way out and you see these little boats there. God makes a way out. And so for Noah, that salvation was in the form of a boat or an ark. In our salvation, in, 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 in our time, that salvation comes in the form of Jesus Christ through trusting in Jesus, through embarking on him, as it were, as our ark, as our lifeboat. We are saying that our full hope is in him and we are saved, we are rescued. As we trust in him, uh, our sin problem is 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 actually dealt with through faith. We are given the power to survive the consequences of our sin because Jesus took our sin upon him. He is our ark. That's the main point of 1 Peter chapter 3. However, there is another clue here that I don't want us to ignore, and it's to do with those imprisoned spirits in verse 19, and Michael Heiser, who, who Kevin Gay referenced and who I've mentioned a couple of times recently, he gives his explanation as to who the spirits are in First Peter chapter 3. And here's the reference once again. After being made alive, he, being Jesus, went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. So who are these spirits? Now Michael Heiser explains that these spirits were the fallen angels in the book of Genesis who caused havoc on earth in the pre-flood days. The ones who actually led humankind to reach such a point of sin and wickedness that the only thing that God could do was to start again with a remnant with the eight on the ark. These, these angels, these, these unclean spirits, these fallen angels, these spirits have since been imprisoned in the underworld, Heiser explains. And so I guess what happens is that when they heard that Jesus, here's the link back to 1 Peter 3, is that when, when they heard that Jesus had been crucified from their prison, they were excited that they might now be released because Jesus was the one who imprison them. So here's Heiser's words, 1 Peter 3, 14 through 22, has Jesus um, yeah, descending to these spirits, to these same spirits in prison, the fallen angels, to tell them that they were still defeated despite the crucifixion. God's plan of salvation and kingdom rule was still intact. In fact, it was right on schedule. 
the crucifixion actually meant victory over over every over every sorry i'm having a, a day if you don't know i have a stutter this is one of the days but i'm i'm gonna say it because it's such a powerful phrase the crucifixion actually meant victory over every demonic force opposed to God. Jesus announces that his death certified victory over the realm of death and all those spiritual forces consigned into the dark world. So what we have in Genesis chapter 9 and First Peter chapter 3 is a covenant-keeping God, a God who deals severely and strongly with evil and with wickedness, and yet who creates a means of salvation for those who would place their trust in him. A God who makes a wonderfully global guarantee through Noah that he then makes good through Jesus Christ. He's the God of the royal grant covenant, and this offer is still open this morning. Jesus is still the ark of God that brings life to those who would make him their king, who would place their full trust in him, who would walk onto him as their lifeboat, as their ark. And this means that Jesus can still save you from your sin, but only if you choose to embark on a voyage with him. So over these next few weeks, we will, we will continue looking at the God of the covenant, at the God of the treaty, at the God of the promise. We will be looking at Abraham and then uh, Moses and the church in Ephesus and Jeremiah and then in the gospel of Mark, leading us up to this greatest covenant of all that resulted in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ at Easter. But this morning, what we've done is we've made a start. Through Noah, we see that God is the God of the royal grant. One who makes a promise that, that, that does not rely on anything that we can do, but purely on his character and his word. The royal grant that says that God will never flood the world again. And the royal grant that also says in 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Christ suffered once for sins so that he could bring us yeah, to God. In other words, Christ did everything so that you could gain everything. And in that wonderful moment, Christ went into the underworld and he proclaimed to all of the demons, those, those ones that had led humanity into ruin, those ones who would wish nothing more than to ruin our homes and our society and our families and our word, world, he proclaimed to them that he won the victory. And so every time we look into the sky and see a rainbow, we think of the royal grant covenant, that most excellent promise that God will never flood the world again, and that most excellent promise that Jesus is the ark of salvation that is available to all. And so friends, when all else sinks, Christ alone will float, and he will keep safe and aloft those who have embarked on him for salvation. And so the question this morning, of course, is have you done that? Have you, are you sailing 
with Christ? Or are you foundering in the water?